Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we're going to explore the June issue of Physics World magazine, which is inspired by the many celebrations of the International Year of Glass, which are running throughout 2022. But first, Physics World's Margaret Harris finds out why a quantum computing company is focusing on the simulation of industrially relevant quantum systems, such as the large molecules used in pharmaceuticals and the materials used in hydrogen fuel cells. I'm speaking today with Simon McAdam and Jenny Strabley of Quantinuum, which is the company that formed last year from elements of a software startup, Cambridge Quantum, and Honeywell Quantum Solutions, which has developed a quantum computer based on qubits, or quantum bits, made from trapped ions. Simon is Quantinuum's quantum computing product lead, while Jenny is its director of offering management. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. So I understand... You're both involved in quantum simulation, which is this idea of using a quantum computer to simulate or model the behavior of quantum systems. What kinds of quantum systems are you interested in? Yeah, so um, we are interested in looking at and solving industrially relevant systems using today's quantum devices. So if you look through the literature over the last uh, number of years, uh, there's been a, a tendency to simulate sort of small molecular systems using today's quantum devices. So starting back in 2017, there's a pretty well-cited paper that looks at modeling systems like dihydrogen or lithium hydride or beryllium hydride. We've seen other small molecules like water uh, being modeled. Um, in 2020, we saw a hydrogen-12 chain being modeled, albeit to sort of a lower level of theory than we're typically used to. And then one of the largest systems being simulated to date uh, was in 2021, which was this H10, hydrogen 10 ring. And since then, we've also seen other systems like carbon carbon lattices being, being simulated using today's quantum devices. So at Quantinium, we want to move away from these small molecular material systems and start to simulate these larger uh, systems that you know industry can get excited about. So we've been working with um, various uh, industrial partners. So we've worked with a major oil and gas company, for example, looking at modeling the binding of uh, carbon dioxide to these so-called metal organic frameworks for carbon capture. We've worked with a major pharmaceutical company uh, looking at using today's quantum computers to quantify the binding energy of a series of small molecule drugs against a particular target protein. We've looked at working with manufacturing companies to look at modeling iron crystals using today's NISC devices. We've also worked with automotive companies looking at modeling a reaction called the oxygen reduction reaction, which is critical for um, hydrogen fuel cells. And, you know, unraveling this using, you know, future quantum computers could help us develop uh, novel catalysts. And we've also worked with uh, a major chemicals company and conglomerate looking at modeling methane gas and its reaction with a simple atmospheric molecule. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we, we want to tackle industrial relevant systems today using today's real real quantum devices. And are these, are you able to model using your quantum system, these problems, uh, which are sort of intermediate problems between the toy problems that have been studied a few years ago and the really advanced problems that were not there yet. Are your quantum machines able to model them better than classical machines yet, or provide different insights or, or new insights? 
We certainly can't model them better than today's classical devices, and that just represents um, is representative of where we are with the today's quantum quantum computers. But we can start to sort of match today's classical devices, assuming that the the system that we're modeling is uh, sufficiently scaled, and we can start to uh, sort of match these these classical techniques to within within chemical accuracy, depending on the system that we're we're modeling. And that's really important. We want to be able to benchmark against existing classical solutions so we know that our quantum solutions are, are working and we can build upon that going forward as the hardware matures and, and as the algorithms mature. Okay, so I was at a conference on commercializing quantum a couple of weeks ago, organized by The Economist in London. And based on what I heard there, you know, a lot of the systems that have really grabbed the attention of folks outside quantum technologies, you know, things like modeling behavior of molecules that are important for the pharmaceutical industry, modeling chemical reactions in fuel cells or batteries. A lot of these systems seem to be just still kind of out of reach with today's quantum computers. How do we get closer to be able to simulate those kinds of systems? And I guess this has a hardware component as well as a software component. I can speak to the hardware part of it. Yeah, so today today's systems are are not quite what they need, they need to be. And I, I think everyone knows the recipe to get there, uh, but getting there is going to be hard. The recipe to get there is we need more qubits and we need higher fidelity in which we do those qubit interactions. And it's going to take both. To get these chemical problems solved, they're typically very deep circuits. That means there's a lot of gates. So if you have errors in those gates, those errors can pile up. So we need to continue to work on bringing those errors down and scaling up the number of qubits. Most likely, and I think uh, very strongly believed that uh, some level of error correction, fault-tolerant computing is going to be needed to really tackle the level of problems that we're hoping to tackle. And how do you get that to that? <laughs> More qubits and, and uh, better fidelity. Also the error correction codes, you know, so error correction, a lot of work has been done theoretically on error correction. Uh, experimentally now, we're starting to get systems that are good enough that we can start experimenting and investigating those error correction theories in the real systems. So you're starting to see some of that work um, in the last year, and I'm sure that will continue over the coming years. So, so those things come together, I think we'll start to see uh, bigger and bigger problems that can be tackled. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's a lot of pieces that have to come together. And it's, it's a difficult difficult problem, but uh, we think it's a, a problem that's going to be something we can tackle in the next um, coming years. Now you mentioned error correcting codes. Uh, um, I guess that kind of leads on to the algorithmic side and the software side of, of things and where improvements lie there. Mm -hmm. Simon, do you want to address that? Sure thing. So um, yeah, so in general. It'll... Improvements will definitely happen as a combination uh, with the, on both the hardware and the software side. Um, so Jenny's kind of spoken about the hardware. We need more, more qubits, better fidelities, lower error rates. On the software side, yes, yeah, so we will certainly need more efficient um, error mitigation. We'll also need algorithms beyond what we use today. So today we use what's known as the variational quantum eigensolver, or the VQE algorithm, as, as it's known as. Um, but we'll certainly need to look at algorithms beyond this um, such as variational quantum phase estimation, for for example. Um, so that's that's one scenario. Um, the other scenario is that we'll need sort of large scale fault tolerant devices with you know many many more qubits and and you know um, 
much faster speeds and higher fidelities and potentially millions of physical physical qubits. But I think the the, the first scenario is probably more likely. Just looking at uh, where the where we are with in terms of the the hardware roadmaps and how quickly the the, the hardware and the software is developing. On the software side, I mean, I understand that Quantinu recently launched a new computational chemistry software platform. How does that platform work? Yeah, so this is our new uh, quantum chemistry platform for quantum computers called Inquanto, which we are uh, releasing uh, very soon. And so Inquanto is a a Python-based platform and it allows users to uh, mix and match the latest quantum algorithms with different subroutines, with different uh, noise mitigation techniques, and it really allows them to explore the capabilities of today's quantum computers and helps them to start to refine their real-world use cases in in tandem with the evolving hardware and algorithms. And do you have anything to add to that, that Jenny, on, on your side? Oh, just I'll mention a little bit that Inquanto is a that was developed out of a lot of the collaborations we were we were already doing. So we were working very closely with some early uh, leading industries on helping them solve their their quantum problems, their quantum chemistry problems. Started to realize that over and over we were using the same set of tools, the same set of algorithms. And um, like any good uh, set of set of very productive scientists decided, well, let me reuse this after being reused several times on different projects, uh, started to make it a little bit more formal and put some product packaging around it, started to show this to some of the people we were working with, and they thought it was very interesting. That's how this this product was born out of the early and iterative collaborations that we've done with leading industrials. And it's really for those verticals that this uh, product should should work so that they can start playing around with the different algorithms, different techniques, start to understand what is their industry's use case for quantum and, and what is their what is their business case for using quantum. So what I'm hearing from that is that at the moment, it's really all about training people in these various industries, these various various verticals, as you say, to think quantum and get used to these simulators. That, so when quantum computers do get powerful enough, they'll be ready to take advantage of it. Is that right? It's training and development. So I think it's both, you know, as as this is a tool that, that will help develop those markets, helps uh, chemists in these industries figure out, could I use it for this application? Could I use it for that application? Then as they start to narrow in on the applications, then they can use the same tool to start developing those tools that they're going to be using in their, in their industry. And... I've heard a little bit about, um, so the idea of, okay, we don't have enough qubits or enough uh, high enough fidelity to solve these really big problems right now, but there's some interest in kind of breaking down industrially relevant chemical systems into small chunks. And this is a really appealing idea, the idea that you can't solve a big problem, so you break it down to small chunks. But how does that actually work in in practice with a a software system and a, a quantum computer like you've currently got? Sure, I, I, can, I can speak to that. So this is probably best explained uh, with an example. So the work that we did with this energy company, we were looking at modeling um, these metal organic frameworks, which are a family of uh, highly crystalline, porous nanomaterials that uh, can capture different gases, whether it's hydrogen or in this case, CO2. And the idea is that 
modeling these materials is, is very expensive, even classically. Um, they present a significant challenge when, even if you want to use today's supercomputers. So there is a need to better understand how that CO2 molecule interacts with these metal-organic frameworks with the idea of building better and more, more scalable materials. Um, so the idea is that we, we could potentially use a quantum computer to model this interaction and in the future uh, develop these more efficient materials. But how do you, how do you simulate these metal granite frameworks today on today's quantum devices? Because they are very large uh, and complicated materials. So what we can do is we can take sort of one unit or one, one block out of that metal granite framework that is kind of representative of, of the, whole, the whole system. But even that would present a significant challenge. That fragment still has about, or I should say that that unit still has about 40 atoms in it, which still prevent, uh, presents quite a significant challenge. But what we can do is we can take the region of interest in that, um, that unit, which in this case is the, the metal center. Uh, this is the site at which the CO2 molecule interacts with. So we treat that metal center with uh, the quantum computer, and then we treat the other uh, regions of the of the the unit, so the rest of the the body of the metal organic framework and the CO two molecule with with a classical device, and this means that we can actually uh, run the system using today's uh, sort of quantum resources. So instead of needing you know two hundred eighty eight qubits, we can now do this with you know less than sixteen qubits, which is much more manageable for today's quantum computers. But there's still a question: is how do you how do you know how to fragment your molecule? Right? Do you want to have Lots of small fragments, or do you want to have a, a, a few bigger fragments? How do you how do you cut those fragments? How do you how do you divide up the molecule? Do you cut certain bonds here, or do you cut certain bonds there? Do you use different solvers on each of these fragments? So these are all all these types of questions we we aim to answer in the, in the paper that we had published, and we 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 showed that actually for the first time you could use this fragmentation to actually model this system, which I think is of broad interest, not only to the quantum computing community, but to broadly speaking to other computational scientists. Um, and then we also applied these quantum algorithms for the first time to model this particular system. And Jenny, from your side, how does this sort of idea of the problem divi being divided in chunks, how does it feed into your work as a, in, in your team developing the hardware? Um, I'd say at this point, uh, I'll probably have two answers to that. Number one, the, the first part is Inquanto is what we call platform inclusive. So it is meant to work across all the types of hardware. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is that Inquanto uses our ticket middleware that's meant to help people use different backends. So we encourage our, our customers of Inquanto to experiment with different backends. Uh, and by backend, I mean different hardware, different simulators uh, to figure out what are the best technologies to solve the, the problems they, they're interested in. From Quantinuum's hardware perspective, it's great that they can, you know, we can break down the problems and do more interesting problems with fewer number of qubits. But in the end game, we know that the number of qubits still needs to grow. We know that the fidelity needs to improve. So it's a great intermediate step where we can do things with, with today's systems. But it doesn't um, doesn't really uh, stop us from continuing to work on our long term roadmap, which is increase the number of qubits and uh, reduce the error rates. What is your roadmap for the next couple of years? What are the main things you're focusing on in the next year, and what's your plan for achieving those milestones? Uh, on the hardware side, we have a we have a fairly uh, straightforward, I guess, easy to state roadmap, um, challenging though as it is. 
uh, when we launched back a few years ago, when we launched our first quantum computer, uh, we set a goal for ourselves to increase uh, quantum volume. That's a metric, the very common metric that's used uh, in the industry. We set a we set a challenge for ourselves to increase that quantum volume uh, 10x per year over five years. And what we like about quantum volume uh, as a metric is that it continues to it is well aligned with pushing the, the fundamental pieces of the quantum computer that we know need to improve. That is scaling the number of qubits, reducing the error. So we think that's a good metric uh, that, that, will, um, that will continue to be sort of our, our guiding post for the, for the next couple of years uh, as we improve our quantum systems. Simon and Jenny, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for thank having you us. Much. Next up, I'm joined by my colleague Sarah Tesh to chat about the June issue of Physics World magazine, which celebrates 2022 as the International Year of Glass. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Sarah is a features editor on Physics World, and she's teamed up with fellow editor Tushna Commissariat to commission a broad range of glass-themed articles for the June issue. And, and the lead feature in the issue is a piece by the science journalist James Dacey called A Transparent Tool for a Fairer Planet. Sarah, can you tell us a bit about what James has to say about the International Year of Glass and why glass is so important to humanity? So yes, this year is the International Year of Glass, um, as you said, and it's under the auspices of the United Nations and has been set up by the International Commission on Glass and various other organisations. Um, and basically it's there to celebrate glass and the fact that we use it in so many aspects of our lives um, and it goes rather uncelebrated and in his feature James looks at the event itself and all of the different things that are going on across the year to uh, celebrate this material and to really kind of advertise the fact that it is there in so many of our technologies nowadays um, and he also talks about some of these um, uses and the fact that, so for instance, fiber optic cables with the internet, um, it's used um, in nanotechnology, it's used in our, our phones, um, as like the screens, as well as like the insides, obviously our glasses, our windows, and just like this rich array of applications that we don't necessarily think of. You might just think of, you know, wine glasses or something but no it's actually there in a lot of aspects of our lives today um actually one of the interesting ones which i thought he brought up um was the fact that with the covid vaccine obviously we are very proud of the fact that we've got all these different vaccines against it um but there's also the fact that these are all held within little glass vials and they have to be extremely chemically inert to be able to store this very important liquid and you have to develop that glass you have to actually um experiment to make sure that your glass isn't going to dissolve into your liquids and contaminate them 
And then there's all these other medical um, applications, like the fact that you have teeth and bone replacements using glass, um, endoscopic examinations use glass. And yeah, so James's um, feature just kind of highlights the fact that you've got all of these different uses. And and one uh, fascinating use of glass is, um, I suppose, incorporating nuclear waste into glass and and using that to 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 store or or dispose of the waste. And th- there's an article uh, in the June issue by Rachel Brazil, and uh, I was surprised when I read it because it it brings together archaeology and material science to to solve problems of nuclear waste disposal can you can you tell us a bit about that yeah so they're quite two quite unusual fields to be joined together nuclear waste scientists along with archaeologists um but basically um the idea to vitrify so turn nuclear waste into glass was developed in like the 1970s um and it was supported by the fact that we find um, volcanic glass, glass that's come from even like outer space, like from meteorites, we find samples of these which are thousands of years old. And then we also find archaeological glass made by humans, which is can go back 4,500 years. Um, And these things have all survived. So the idea was if we could put nuclear waste into this, like this material, then maybe it would be stable enough not to leak into the environment. That's very important, obviously, for um, radioactive waste because you it has such long half-lives, especially the stuff that's um, created in from nuclear power stations. But the problem is, is we don't know the behavior of this nuclear waste when it's vitrified. We don't know how it's going to look in thousands of years' time, whether we our predictions that it's going to be stable are actually true. So as well as doing some accelerated testing in the lab, which kind of basically they do things at high pressure, high temperatures to try and see how the glass would react. Whilst that those kind of experiments are useful, they only give you like a certain level of detail. It doesn't look at what happens when things are happening really slow in the environmental changes. And so scientists are instead turning to all of these really old samples because they've been exposed to the environmental conditions that nuclear waste might be exposed to. And so um, scientists like um, Claire Thorpe um, from the University of Sheffield and Carolyn Pierce from Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in the US, um, they look for these old glass samples and they study them and they try to find examples where they know what the environmental conditions have been. So, for example, um, slag piles where, from like industrial um, uses, they will have an idea of how, what the environmental surroundings have been for those. Um, and then there's a site that um, Carolyn Pierce looks at um, in Sweden, which is a pre-Viking hill fort. And they've got... Oh, that was really interesting, that site, I thought. Yeah, exactly. And they've got... Um, they've got records going back these 1,500 years so they know what kind of um, environmental conditions have been there. And 
um, in this particular example, the vitrified material is actually in the walls of this um, hill fort. And um, when studying it, they've realised that there's actually biological um, like um, fungi and bacteria and lichens on the glass, which they weren't expecting. And they found that with higher iron content, they've got more of this. Um, and this could be quite important for nuclear waste because of the steel canisters that the glass is actually stored in. And so they need to study this. They need to understand, is this bacteria corroding the um, the glass or is it actually providing a bit of a biofilm that protects the glass? And it's all these kind of elements that they they need to understand to really be able to predict whether the nuclear waste glass is going to be safe for us in thousands of years time. But um, one thing I found really interesting was the fact that one of the projects that Claire Thorpe works on at the University of Sheffield is this Balladon Quarry in Derbyshire. And it's basically the longest running glass burial experiment. And it looks at the degradation of archaeological glasses under alkaline conditions. And those are the conditions that vitrified nuclear waste will experience. And this experiment is intending to run for 500 years. And that just seems huge. It's already been running for decades to this point, And yet it's still got a long way. And we'll still be finding out about the um, the behaviour of the glass then. Um, also, another thing I found very interesting <laughs> was the fact that um, the scientists are saying that one of the things that makes glass like makes glass unpredictable is the fact that any additive into the, you know, your standard silicon dioxide, any additive into it affects the glass behavior. And it's actually very difficult to predict. Even after thousands of years of us using glass, it's still difficult for us to predict how the glass is going to behave with all these different elements in it. And obviously, nuclear waste has quite a lot of different elements in it and so <laughs> that's right and so um you can't just you know stick into a program oh i've got this this amount of this this percentage of plutonium and oh, i've got all of these like some iron thrown in there and you can't just put it into a program and let it predict it for you that amazes me considering how long we've been using glass for Mm, yeah, it, it's a, a really fascinating article by Rachel. And another article, Sarah, that caught my eye is by James McKenzie, who's a, a regular columnist on Physics World. And, and he's pointed out that many of us will be walking around with a piece of glass in our pocket which sounds like a really dangerous thing to do. You wouldn't normally do that. But of course, it's the screen on our mobile phone. And, you know, mobile phones are pretty tough. You can drop them, you can sort of sit on them, and they don't break. And it, James's article um, is called The Unsung Hero of the Smartphone. And it's about the inventor of Gorilla Glass, which is used uh, in mobile phones. C can you tell us a bit about him? Oh uh, yes, yeah, so um, Gorilla Glass was originates in a uh, one of those kind of accidental experimental results. Uh, so Donald Stuckey, a scientist in the US, was um, looking at a particular type of glass and its photosensitive capabilities, and 
one day in one of his experiments, um, instead of heating the glass he was looking at to 600 degrees, he heated it to 900 degrees. And then when he took it out of the oven, he dropped it. And instead of breaking and shattering everywhere, as we would expect glass to do, it bounced. And there you have the origin story of Gorilla Glass. And from then on, it went through various generations to the type we get on our phones today. Um, but yes, the original discovery was accidental, which I found very interesting. Yeah, that's yet another amazing thing about glass is that, you know, normally we think that it's weak and it, it shatters into a million pieces. But, you know, you, you, you can have glass floors that you can stomp up and down on and uh, you know, toughen glass windows that uh, sort of foil burglars. It's a, it is a really amazing material. And um, uh, another thing that I noticed uh, in the June issue, Sarah, is that you've used uh, full page images to illustrate different aspects of glass. Yes. So um, Tushner and I found some beautiful images of glass. So glasses, you know, often thought of, you can use them for sculptures and beautiful glass vases. And Murano glass, for example, is famous for its beauty. But there's also these gorgeous examples out there of glass in scientific contexts. And so we've picked out a few of our favourites, um, which included the mirrors at LIGO that are used in their interferometer. There's also Fresnel glasses in uh, lighthouses. Um, and another one of the images that we chose um, is from the manufacturing process of glass fibers. And it's this gorgeous, it looks like an eye and it has glass just dripping down from it in this um, red glowing, kind of looks a bit like the, uh, um, the Eye of Sauron and Lord of the Rings. Is that <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> that, 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 was a, that was a really good image. But I have to say my, my favorite image was um, you, you've got an image of, of something called Prince Rupert's Drops, which I had never heard of. And apparently these are things that, um, that have confounded scientists for quite a while. And these drops are really, really strong and, and resistant to breaking. But if you, if you sort of tap them gently in, in the wrong place, They'll, they'll break down into into a powder. Is that right? That, that sounds like an amazing material. Yes. So um, it's all about the uh, stresses um, um, on the outside and the inside of these drops. But yes, um, you drop this molten glass, it becomes super strong at the um, super strong at the kind of like end of it where the like a, like the tadpole yeah, end. Yeah, shaped like know? a tadpole, and, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so the, is it the tadpole end is really strong, but the tail, you touch the tail and it, the whole thing shatters. Yeah, and it's all about the um, different strengths and the cooling effects and what does what cools fastest and what doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I suppose that's reminiscent of uh, of car windscreens, which are sort of designed, aren't they? They're sort of pre-stressed to to break in a certain way. This is, you know, perhaps sort of a, a prototype of that uh, technology. Yeah. So like going back to that Gorilla Glass, it's again, like you can change the properties of glass with the uh, manufacturing and the cooling and the ingredients that go into it. It's such a versatile material. Mm. 
And, and there's even more in, in the June issue um, of Physics World about glass. Um, another regular columnist of ours, Bob Kreese, visits the Corning Museum of Glass in the U.S. Christine Tremblay at Canada's University of Laval talks about her research in optical telecommunications. And John Cartwright surveys the often wondrous materials properties of glass. And the June issue of Physics World magazine is available now to members of the Institute of Physics. And the articles that we've mentioned will soon be published on the Physics World website. I think they'll be coming out throughout the month of June. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Sarah, and congratulations with a fantastic special issue of Physics World. Thank you, and thanks for having me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Jenny Strabley, Simon McAdams, Margaret Harris, and Sarah Tesh for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do have a listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with Martina Mikulska at University College London about the antibacterial properties of patterned glass surfaces and how they can be used in medical settings. Andrew also chats with Julian Jones from Imperial College London about bioglass, a material that can heal bones and teeth. Physics World.